It's Raw, It's Real, It's Unkempt, a podcast for founders, investors, and entrepreneurs hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, Queensland's Chief Entrepreneur. Now this week, I am super excited. We are talking with Anil Subherwal, who is the Vice President of Chrome OS, as well as Chrome the Browser and Google Photos. Plus, he is the Australian site lead right here in the heart of our magical country. And then of course, I dive into Leanne's splaining. We run deep into intrapreneurship. That's right, it's not just about the entrepreneurs, what's inside that counts? Leanne's splaining in its finest. Well, Anil, my goodness, I feel like we're in this setting with two mates sitting around and enjoying a connection over all of the magical memories. Welcome to Unkempt. It's so great to have you on the show. We have very many entrepreneurs, startups, founders across Queensland that dial into this show. And now what I've got to say is you are one seriously cool and talented human. You've been in Google since 2009 and amongst a few roles, there's probably a number that are notable. Um, You led the creation and the rollout of Google Photos And now you're back here in the heartlands of Australia where you're the site lead as well as the vice president for Chrome and Photos. It's epic, my friend. Give me a little bit of the sound bites of the magic life that you are leading. It feels like you've got an anil carpet ride that you've jumped on. The journey around Google Photos and what it's essentially like to create a startup with inside of a big company. Well, Leanne, first, thank you for that introduction. From this point forward, no matter where I go, I'm going to have you introduce me because that's by far the best introduction I think I've ever had. So thank you. And it is so great to see you and spend time with you again. So thank you for having me. It's been an incredible journey, as you described. Uh, In terms of the opportunity around Google Photos, it really truly was entrepreneurship at its best. As you know, I'm an entrepreneur by nature. And so when I joined Google, I truly thought I would be there for a year or two and I would struggle and have to leave to be able to go back to having the autonomy that I I sort of love to be able to build products. Uh, But within Google, I was able to find that there, like with most organizations, there actually is a real deep desire for innovation and a passion for building really great experiences. It's just a matter of finding the right way to sort of sell that story and that narrative within a company to be able to get it funded and be able to put some runs on the board. And so with Google Photos, we uh, kicked off that project in mid 2013. Uh, It was a Skunk Works effort. There was a group of us that I sort of pulled together and we used to spend a a day in San Francisco hiding away in front of whiteboards and pulling together the plans until we ultimately got an opportunity to pitch it in front of our CEO. And uh, he was uh, blown away and machine learning was a key area of investment for the company. And we were demonstrating a really practical application of machine learning uh, in a consumer environment in a way that was really valuable and useful for our end users. And it sort of just took off from there and we got a great opportunity. We launched it at Google I.O. in May 2015. Uh, And then uh, it's one of the fastest growing consumer apps um, that's out there. It got to we just crossed over a billion users uh, earlier this year. So in less than um, uh, in less than three and a half years, we went from zero to a billion monthly active users. So it's just yeah, it's been an incredible ride and something I'm incredibly proud of. You know, Google is one of the, if not the biggest name in the tech world. And I'm not sure that there's anyone that doesn't use the application on an every single day basis. And Google Photos is definitely one of those apps. You talked about the fact that you've cracked a billion users across the world. 
Talk to me a little bit about scale. In my company, Everledger, I go out and uh, have to recruit hundreds of users onto our platform and consult with them on the co-creation of products. But I'd imagine, is it as easy to say, here's a great product, slide it in, and a billion people come swarming in the front door? Or is it just as difficult to find users to uptake into new features and functions? There are definite advantages of being part of Google when it comes to distribution and scale. In particular, I remember being an entrepreneur and every time I would do a startup, I would desperately try to get any sort of coverage from TechCrunch or uh, you know, get it on TechMeme or anything else. And no matter what I did, I could not get anyone's attention. Whereas today, literally with the products I build, people are reverse engineering my products to read strings in order to try to figure out what it is that we're doing. And those are getting you know, front page articles on the verge. So in some ways, there is definitive truth that you know, as you build a product at Google, you sneeze and you're gonna get a few hundred thousand users, if not million users, testing something within your product. But in terms of keeping them and retaining them, as you know, Leanne, better than anyone, the most important aspect when you build products and experiences, it's not the top of the funnel, but it's actually the bottom of the funnel. It's the retention aspect. And, and it, you know, what we deal with at Google or otherwise, users are just as fickle no matter who builds the product. And so, yes, there's amazing opportunity for us to get in front of users by using the brand and the reach that Google has with products like Android and you know, with, uh, with everything that we have in terms of our uh, existing user base. But at the same time, unless you build a really great product that people love, it doesn't matter. They're not going to stick around. I love those sound bites. It's critically important because when I meet with startups across Queensland, I often talk to them about the importance of knowing your customer and living your values, whatever they may be. And I read an article about you being super proud of the Google Photos team um, knowing and following a vision. I think you said, I quote, if you walk through the Google Photos building and you say, hey, what do we do? Every single person in your team and in Google will know. And they say, we're a home for all your photos organized and brought to life so you can save and share what matters. So why is having that clarity of mission and value so important? I learned this really early in my career. And thank you for bringing that up because it is truly one of the things that I think is the most important. Let me tell you, I'll, I'll say a little story that I hope your listeners will find interesting. It's something that stuck with me uh, throughout my entire career. When I was very young uh, and I was still in university, I attended a speaking engagement um, where the keynote speaker was Stephen Covey. He's the uh, author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Um, he's no longer with us, but a phenomenal individual, incredibly wise man, and a great book for those of you, of course, who haven't read it. Um, we were in this auditorium. There was a couple of thousand people in this auditorium. We were in the bowels of this university he walked on stage and he said, everyone stand up and close your eyes. We all sort of hesitantly stood up and closed our eyes. And he said, point north. Now, many of us, myself included, had no idea where we were. So we thought for a second and like, how did we get in the building and where? Okay, so I think it's that way. And so we closed our eyes and we pointed. And he said, okay, everyone open your eyes. And there was about 2,000 of us. And as we looked around that sea of auditorium, that, auditor that sea of people in that auditorium, there were people pointing in 2,000 different directions in terms of what they thought north was. But then this is my favorite part. He said, okay, put your hands down, close your eyes again. If you have confidence that you know which direction north is, point. Otherwise, keep your hand down. 
So I had no idea. I kept my hand down. And he said, okay, now everyone open their eyes. So I opened my eyes and I saw now probably about 10%, about 200 people pointing north. And those 200 people were pointing in 200 different directions. And the point he made stuck with me my entire career. He said, this is unfortunately how most organizations work, small or large. You have the group, broad population of people who are responsible for building the products and experiences. And they, if you force them, will kind of tell you what they think the product strategy is and why you're doing what you're doing and what the you know, North Star metrics are and so forth. But they're not really sure. But worse, the people who are responsible for deciding, directing, and giving that level of clarity, they themselves also are not aligned. And so how can you make sure your organization is all rowing in the same direction when the leaders themselves don't actually get onto the same page? And at, the, at around the same time, I read a great book, Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore, and there was this positioning statement. It was a single sentence, and it was, for these people who have this problem, our product does this, that unlike these alternatives, we do it differently this way. And that was it. And every single product I've ever developed in my entire life, whether I've taken it over, you know, I recently took over Chrome about two and a half years ago, 3 billion user product. I take that over and I still get everyone to write down that positioning statement for me. And I still am amazed to see my leadership team maybe would say 20 different things in terms of why it is we build that product. Chrome OS, photos, you know, all, all of the different things that we do with Google, anything that you do outside of Google, can you write down on a single piece of paper that one sentence that says who you're for, what problem you solve? It's really, really great at giving you focus. I remember in this book, they cited the example was Walmart, the big box retailer, and their positioning statement was for families who live paycheck to paycheck. Now, when I was in the US, I used to go to Walmart all the time, but they didn't think about me when they picked what products they stocked, where they put them on the shelves, what to put on special. They always had a particular user and problem in mind. And I think that level of clarity is really important. And I believe it all starts there. So if you're building a product and you cannot explain very clearly and simply to any person, perhaps Leanne explain it to someone, what it means in terms of who the problem, what the user is, what problem you're solving, why you're better than anything else that's out there. If you can't do that, honestly, you should just go home. There's no point. That is the most important thing and everything comes from there. Wow, Anil. I, could, I have to tell you, I'm so focused on every single word you just said. And for the listeners, if you are not listening to every single word with a pen and paper, writing it down and actually replaying this over and over again, put your ear pods in and listen to it, there are incredible, incredible morsels uh, of wisdom here that have just been spoken and that lived experience that lives on. Let's talk about intrapreneurship. Um, in a time that's changing so rapidly now, uh, innovation is at the forefront of every business, whether you are a barbershop or whether you're a, an employee inside of a government organisation or a large corporate. So we need entrepreneurship more so than ever. We often think about entrepreneurs as those madcap creatives who have the incredible ideas and stop their lives to realise the vision. But there's also a breed of preneur. Uh, that operates from within, who looks for opportunities to transform the current structure or even disrupt processes from within a company, as well as creating entirely new products for entirely new customer segments. Companies like Google encourage this kind of internal disruption. And if you were to give advice to any entrepreneur, hey, let's hope that uh, all the government bods are listening to this one, 
um, who are in companies or in government that discourage that kind of innovative thinking from within, what would you say to them to help them enable change? That's a great question. I remember early in my career at Google, I had the pleasure of speaking to a number of different organizations, including those from the government. And it made me really realize and appreciate how fortunate I am at a company like Google that encourages that type of innovation and entrepreneurship. Because I remember saying, you know, one of the most important things with innovation is the ability to fail and ability to fail fast and try things and fail and move on. And, and someone in the audience pointed out to me, they said, listen, you know, sometimes in the government, when you fail once, everyone is there to cast a really big spotlight on it and remind everyone of how much you failed and you don't get a second shot because often you're not elected again to have that second opportunity. So failing is not really the best way that we can innovate. What else do you got? <laughs> and I remember that as a, as a really important moment of realizing, you know what, fair enough. There are really great things that larger private organizations like Google and others have the benefit of being able to do. So I thought more about that around, well, what does it mean to have entrepreneurship in some of these other organizations and at the government level? Like, what do you need to do? And what, what, what I realized is it's not necessarily that innovation or sort of this type of creative thinking is discouraged. In fact, I think anyone would tell you it's highly encouraged. It's the risk reward equation that often is the difficulty that people have is because they say, well, I'd love to do that, but the risk is far too high for that reward. And so it's finding a way to do the risk and the reward in a way that's manageable and acceptable and acknowledged early on as an area. So like, as I think about things is, risk scenarios or opportunities where you try it in a smaller area. So if it does fail, it's seen, it's sort of like, you know, you get a new skin cream and they say, test it on one little part of your skin first, and then you can apply it everywhere else, but let's make sure it doesn't rash right away, right? Like you don't want to come up with the, okay, we're going to go and do this massive new overhaul in this really innovative way. If you don't have the, the certainty that that's going to succeed, but finding pockets where you can innovate and make little, do creative things. And actually I commend the government tremendously in a lot of the areas as I see the, our digital evolution here in Australia comparative to what I'm experiencing internationally. It's amazing to see how we've done things with simple things like digital licensing or how we manage things like the RTA and everything. And we actually at a country level um, have done pretty phenomenal and I'm impressed to see what we're doing. And, and so credit to the government for continuing to push. And I think those are the types of areas. So. To, to try to answer your question, I would say the most important thing when it comes to entrepreneurship is understanding where opportunities exist that allow you to carve out that risk reward calculation and being able to then get the relative air cover that you need to be able to go and try those things in order to be able to take those creative risks and to be able to do it. Because we have this a little bit in Google as well, is everyone wants to innovate, but nobody wants to fail. And everyone thinks about all of the startups that are successful, but no one ever tells the story of the thousands of startups for every one that succeeds that have failed before them, right? And even all the successful ones, there were thousands of them that literally did the exact same thing. It was just, they didn't quite, how many YouTubes were there before and after, before YouTube became YouTube and everyone else became nothing. And so just because you have a great idea, it doesn't mean that it's gonna succeed. So if you don't go into it recognizing failure as an option, you will never truly be able to innovate. So what you need to do is say like, if we fail, is that okay? Is this the type of area that I can fail at? And if it's not, maybe you have to be less risk averse there, but then you find the pockets where you can innovate in other ways. Other ways that you do it is you look at um, 
sort of different opportunities of engaging partners and third parties and different ways that you can innovate in those things. And you end up being a little bit further removed. You've got a hand, you know, an arm's length away from those opportunities. But entrepreneurship is no different than entrepreneurship other than your uh, investors in entrepreneurship tend to be very uh, excited about risk. They want, like, I'm going to give you a little bit, and I know that I'm going to make 10 investments and seven or eight are going to fail, but the one or two that are the home runs, that's going to pay for everything else. Entrepreneurship doesn't typically have, entrepreneurship, excuse me, doesn't typically have that opportunity. Your investors typically need nine out of 10 to succeed. And that's where finding those right pockets. So I appreciate it, Google. I'm lucky because we have more of a culture for that. But I think if you take the flip side of it with innovators dilemma and everything else, is should you not take any risks, the downside is far worse than the risk of failing. And that equation is really important for leaders to understand. When you when you rocked back here to Australia and you've made Australia now, of course, your home base uh, and you took up your latest role, you also said that you wanted to see entrepreneurship in Australia flourish. And, of course, I'm the Queensland chief entrepreneur here and we're both singing from the same song sheet. Uh, what can all of us do to help make that goal a reality? Well, I, the first thing I'll say is all of you have already done a tremendous job Leanne, when you and I first met, uh, I don't know, we were reflecting on how long ago that was, now coming on, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Um, the landscape of startups here in Australia was almost non-existent, right? There was very little funding. There was little, very little government incentives for funding. The network was incredibly small. Mentorship wasn't, the, wasn't really a supportive plan. And then the number of companies that were actually succeeding here was limited and you couldn't you you would look through you know the all the names of the buildings across downtown sydney or downtown brisbane or anywhere else and you'd be like none of them are even from this country right let alone being in tech and so innovation and technology and startups really wasn't a construct here 15 years ago and now i had the pleasure of you know being at google and being in the us for about five years i returned a couple of years ago and i've had the pleasure now of being part of a venture capital firm and really get involved like it is amazing. There is funding, there is mentorship, there is networking. So anyone who 15 years ago said starting a company in Australia is hard, I promise you that's not true anymore. And if you can't or don't start a company here in Australia, there is no reason that you can't do it. It's not as if it's better in the US. It's not. I promise you that. Starting a company here in Australia is just as good and just as amazing and possible. Now the problem we have is how do we encourage our people to do it? How do we create this culture of risk-taking and startup mentality and a willingness to try to build global products? Because in the next 10 years, there's this great quote, one of my mentors, a gentleman named Daniel Petrie, and he said something that I really love, which is he said, over the next 10 years, Australia is going to be, we're going to decide whether Australia is uh, innovates and is an exporter of innovation, or we purely just import innovation that other people create. And we're at that inflection point right now. And I think so for those of you who are here or thinking about starting your next company and what that could look like and what entrepreneurship is, there is no better time. There is no better opportunity. There's no better support. There is capital. There is networks. There's amazing things right now in this country. Um, and it's a great time to do it. And lots of really important things that can be done at a global level. I think the coronavirus has shown us the world is flat more than ever. So you can build products from Australia that have global impact 
And this is, you know, it's a great opportunity. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about giving back in any way I can through the venture firm that I participate in, but also mentoring and partnering with startups and investing personally. And uh, this is a great time to be an entrepreneur. You know, I'm definitely one for fashions. And I think today I've got a whole bunch of new shirts that I'm going to start to get printed with hashtag quotes from Anil. So... (laughs) Your words are incredible. I love it. I'm going to replay this even before it gets posted up for everyone else to hear. I love giving my guests a crystal ball. Um, You can either do one of two things, what you see in the future, 20, 30 and beyond, or what would you tell your 15-year-old self in a different way? And Where would that have led you if you took that pathway? Well, the second one's easy. I would tell my 15-year-old self to buy a lot of Apple stock. (laughs) I would have probably led in a very different way. Um, look, I'll, I'll do the crystal ball forward because I always, I, my job often is to think about the future of technology and what the set of sea changes are that are going to occur. You know, we saw the advent of the internet and the advent of mobile and then social and just really sort of the different changes we're seeing. I think we're all very much understanding machine learning and AI and what's happening there. What I'm really excited about is an area that I, I think is going to be incredible to keep an eye on is the health space and what's going to happen there in the course of the next 10 years. Because as a technologist, as a product person, as an entrepreneur, you think about assets that you have when you build things. You think about problems, but then you also think about what do you have to solve those problems. And when, when you talk about technology, at the end of the day, the data is the thing that's the most important thing to build great things. Like if you think of Google Photos, it's fundamentally based on the construct of the photos as the data and we all have too many of them and we never reminisce, we never save them, we never find them, we never, you know, and so what can we do with that data? Email, messaging, this is all just fundamentally data and the clever things we can do on top of it. If I think about the world of, you know, medicine, we have such incredible data now that has never, ever been looked at or harnessed. Like you think about those MRI scans or those CAT scans that people have and you know, a doctor that has to sit there manually and try to identify whether that's melanoma or that's a tumor or whatever else. And we all hear the stories of, oh gosh, that was missed and the person was told everything was fine. And then a week later they found out that actually no, they had cancer and had they caught it earlier. Like, and the reality is these are incredibly smart, talented individuals, but it's pattern recognition. And it's something that you take that amazing, capable human and you put them next to a computer that can support and supplement that work. And then now what you end up having is these really talented individuals focused more more on therapy and prevention than they are on diagnosis. And I think a computer can do amazing things. So if I look out, you know, 10 years from now or beyond, I'm excited about the idea that, you know, my children will never get misdiagnosed for anything or there's not going to be this problem where they're not going to be like, oh, we found the cancer too late. Like we are, we are going to be able to figure out therapy and prevention And we're going to be focused on those things versus like building tools that actually help us figure out whether you have the thing in the first place. And I think that's where computers and technology will make a huge change. And so I think the healthcare industry 10 years from now is going to look entirely different than where it is today. Yeah, big call out to the Google X team. I've been so fortunate in the last five years to have some connections in with the team there and the work that they're doing in various ways to rethink or enable the future and bring it forward to today is critically important. And as you said, we have the tyranny of distance here in Australia. I've just literally landed back from Indigenous communities this week and, for me, uh, applying the exact set 
of vision statements that you've just created for the world. Uh, imagine that across our Indigenous communities in the central uh, heat waves of Queensland and beyond into Australia, these communities that have a right, a right to be seen, heard and to be medically diagnosed quickly. So I think you're right. Amen, Anil. Amen to you, my friend. Thank you for a great discussion. We're really fortunate to um, be able to tap into a little bit of your time. So generous of you, honestly, the amount of work that you're doing and the heavy lifting, but it's so good to have you home. And I'm even proud to be able to call you a friend. So thank you so much. No, the honour was mine, Leanne. I can't thank you enough for the opportunity and for your friendship through the years. It's been truly uh, impactful on my own career. So thank you for everything. It was great to have this conversation and uh, yeah, happy to do it again anytime. And this week, I, Leanne, explain why entrepreneurs are not just entrepreneurs working inside of large corporations. I think about how people wrongly assume that entrepreneurs working in startups create more transformative innovations than entrepreneurs working in large companies. There's a heap of research data that reveals the quite the opposite. In fact, over 70% of transformative innovations are conceived, developed, and commercialized by employees working within large companies. Now, this finding stands in the stark contrast of how we look at contemporary society currently, particularly as we celebrate entrepreneurs as the true heroes of change. My goal is to not denigrate entrepreneurs, certainly not. I think we're all incredible humans and entrepreneurship definitely matters. But the creation of new companies makes a significant contribution to the economy as well as the advancement of society. The inventiveness and proactive risk taking that entrepreneur's engagement should be admired and definitely celebrated. But even as we celebrate our entrepreneurs, we should do this in a manner that is consistent with the actual contributions to society. The celebrity status that some entrepreneurs gain means that we spend a disproportionate amount of time studying and talking about them, a bit like a David Attenborough movie series. When we do that, we're ignoring the people that actually contribute to a lot of innovation. Um, employees working in large organizations, as I said, create over 70% of the transformative innovations. And then so we should be paying more attention and time to them, learning how the great entrepreneurs succeed. Another challenge of entrepreneurship and the celebrity status that goes hand in hand is that we start to teach the qualities that are typical of entrepreneurs to innovators that work in large companies. Now, for sure, there are some shared qualities between entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs, and both need to be proactive and risk-taking, comfortable with ambiguity, and create and engage in a creative problem-solving awareness. They also need to be completely aligned with the market needs. Now, whilst there are some shared quality with entrepreneurs, it can certainly be helpful for corporate innovators to understand how we're able to leverage. I've seen many innovators flame out within large companies because they didn't have enough self-awareness to recognize what they were working on in a different context to the startup founders. And just like entrepreneurship might not be for everyone, the same too can be applied to intrapreneurship. There are really important differences to think about. One, typically leadership support in entrepreneurship and intrapreneurship are completely different. We tell both entrepreneurs and intrapreneurs that their inventions are to succeed. They have to have focus on meeting their customers' needs. However, for intrapreneurs, there's an internal customer that they also have to serve. 
It's really important that very few companies are able to support this entrepreneurship innovation step. This means that entrepreneurs have to understand their leaders' strategic goals and ensure that their innovation projects are definitely aligned to this, as well as serving the end customer. Now, unlike entrepreneurs who can seek funding from several venture capital firms, entrepreneurs have only one VC, and this is why strategic alignment and leadership support matters. And then there's bridging to the core. The most unsuccessful entrepreneurs I've met in my work with companies are those that are frustrated by corporate politics. And the most successful entrepreneurs view corporate politics as a part of the challenge that they have to manage in order to succeed. They enjoy overcoming corporate hurdles and building bridges to the core business. And for corporate innovators to succeed, they also need to build support from colleagues within the business functions as a diverse, as legal, compliance, finance, marketing, branding, and human resources. Now, that's a challenge that most entrepreneurs and founders certainly don't have to tackle. And then, of course, there's the innovation practice. Now, this is one area where there is the most overlap with entrepreneurship because just like entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs need to design and test their value proposition and business models. However, entrepreneurs face the challenge that their leaders are risk adverse. Yep, they've got a job they need to protect and keep. You know, they live in this double-binded world where they need resources to validate their ideas but can only get those resources if their ideas have already been validated. So as such, entrepreneurs need to use their political acumen to get those resources and create a space to validate their ideas. And as they start to show traction, then they're able to attract more resources, more capital, so that they can scale their innovations from within. So learning how to navigate corporate politics and leverage relationships is the greatest entrepreneur's superpower. And this is what they've got going for them beyond having breakthrough ideas. Now, without this superpower, corporate innovators just simply cannot succeed. So it is true that corporate politics has a negative brand, and it is often viewed as an unjustified power grab or a self-serving blocking of the careers of others. But in the context of innovation, what I mean by politics is that entrepreneurs need to have the ability to build relationships with key stakeholders. The need for power and legitimacy within an organization simply cannot be ignored. And without power and legitimacy, innovation simply cannot happen in a repeatable and sustainable way. So as such, we need to be focusing on how we can train and support entrepreneurs to develop their skills in building relationships with key stakeholders, because this is really important. They will have access to resources that entrepreneurs can only dream of. And this is the kind of access that enables multi-capabilities from within their company a well-known brand, and access to customers and resources to scale. Who knows? If we had great entrepreneurs in Kodak, maybe Kodak would never have been a brand of the past. Unkempt. It's hosted by me, Leanne Kemp, and produced by the Office of Queensland Chief Entrepreneur and our Mike and mates at the Content Division. Hey, you like what you hear? Well, head over to your podcast platform of choice and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. For more tips, why don't you visit chiefentrepreneur.qld.gov.au. Thanks for listening.